This is Dan Wilson Uncancelled. Let's go. Brendan O'Neill is tonight's outsider. Now, what has been described as a major environmental scandal, the apparently doomed Great Barrier Reef in Australia has not only recovered from critical damage, parts of it have never been better. As recently as May, we were being told to kiss goodbye to the majestic 1,500-mile coral structure by hysterical environmentalists who warned that global warning was killing it off. According to the fair-mongering boffins, the watery wonder has been suffering from unprecedented mass bleaching, where the plants which live on the reefs and provide food for it die off due to warmer seas. While all of that has been thrown out the window by a bombshell new report conducted by the Australian Institute of Marine Science, which reveals that coral cover across two-thirds of the reef is now at its highest level in 36 years of observations. So something fishy is going on here. And as Ross Clark writes in The Spectator, the speed of the recovery of coral is remarkable. In 2016, the entire reef was declared dead in an obituary published in the environmental magazine Outside. But like the stories of people saved from cremation by a slight twitch at the 11th hour, its death seems to have been exaggerated. So Brendan O'Neill, I mean, has the thriving Great Barrier Reef debunked the doomsday narrative around climate change? I think it has, or it certainly should contribute to that debunking. And I think we should remind ourselves how huge the Great Barrier Reef story was. I mean, this was doing the rounds for quite a few years. We were told about it all the time in almost every climate change discussion I've been a part of over the past few years. People would raise the Great Barrier Reef and its death and the fact that the plants were dying and therefore the animals would die and this wonderful piece of land would be destroyed by evil humankind. It became a real poster boy for the doom-mongering of the chattering classes. And now we know that actually its death has been greatly exaggerated. As you say, there is now more cover in terms of the plants and the coral there than there has been for 37 years. And it's doing pretty well. So it's another apocalyptic story that has proved to be false. I know. And Brendan, this has happened so many times before, hasn't it? I mean, the ozone hole, uh, the Maldives were meant to be underwater by now. I mean, time and again. But it doesn't seem to make a difference uh, when we try and point out uh, to some of these uh, eco-extremists, oh, you know what, where's your evidence for this? I mean, David Frost, Lord David Frost, the great Lord David Frost this week, being absolutely slammed because he said, look, climate change is happening, but there's no evidence that we're in a climate emergency. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there are so many eco-apocalypses that were predicted but never happened. And there, you can trace them back over the past 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, you know, we were told that there would be global cooling, that there would be a real freezing of the planet. Of course, that's now gone out the window. We were told there was a population bomb. That was the big scare story of the 1970s. There would be too many people. We'd run out of food. We wouldn't be able to feed everyone. That didn't happen either, although we may now run out of food as a result of eco-hysteria and eco-policies, not because of a population bomb. And, you know, we were told about acid rain and the ozone layer and all those issues that we were 
beaten across the head with for decades, none of which came to fruition. Peak oil is another one. How, how much did we talk about peak oil about 10 or 15 years ago? Oil was running out. There wasn't a single drop left. That wasn't true. So all of these apocalypses that were predicted simply didn't happen. And that should at least make us skeptical of the eco-fear mongering that is going on today, where we're told that a billion people will die as a result of climate change. I just don't believe it. Well, no, I don't believe it either. And what we certainly shouldn't believe, Brendan, is sections of the media, uh, which are really sort of amping up the hysteria because they think it's good for ratings or good for clicks. I mean, remember Sky News said that Buckingham Palace could be flooded in a few years. That was completely debunked. The Guardian's coverage of this has been absolutely telling. I mean, they're devastated, Brendan. They're, they're devastated that the Coral yeah. Reef has been saved, the Great Barrier Reef has been saved, and they don't want to admit it. I mean, listen to, the, listen to their report. The World Heritage Site has some capacity for recovery, but the window is closing fast as the climate continues to warm. That's absolutely not what this report shows. There's nothing to worry about. The Great Barrier Reef is in better shape than it has been for three decades. Absolutely. And to people like me and you, that is great news. It's wonderful that the Great Barrier Reef is in good health. It's a wonderful part of the world and it's good that it is, it's in good condition. It's not dying as we were told. But the reason The Guardian and other eco-hysterics are actually a bit depressed about this news is because it has chipped away at this particular story, which they did so much to promote. But more importantly, it's chipped away at the entire edifice of climate change scaremongering, and this notion that we are on the cusp of an apocalypse. We are told that all the time these days. Every time there's a heat wave or particularly heavy rain or floods, even volcanic eruptions or plagues of locusts, anything, any natural phenomena that happens around the world is instantly blamed on climate change, which really is a way of saying it's mankind's fault. We are plunging the world into doom. I think we need more skepticism about this, and we need to start demanding that our political class should focus more on the real problems we face rather than fantasy end-of-the-world scenarios. Yeah, very true. And we're going to get a lot of it, aren't we, Brendan, over the next four days? My goodness. Because, you know, it's the middle of summer, it's August, and guess what? <laughs> it's going to be 30 degrees. The world is yeah. ending. Brendan O'Neill, thank you so much. Now, this year marks 10 years since the launch of Operation U-Tree, the police investigation in the wake of the Jimmy Savile scandal that put some of Britain's biggest entertainers in the dock for historic sex allegations. Now, while 19 arrests were made, leading to some high-profile convictions, the investigation also became infamous for the household names that were wrongly accused. Among them was pop megastar Sir Cliff Richard, radio DJ Paul Gambaccini and former pop idol judge and DJ Dr Neil Fox. An announcement earlier today revealed that a brand new documentary is in the pipeline titled The Accused National Treasures on Trial, which will explore the catastrophic impact that these false accusations had on their lives. Sir Cliff and Gambaccini also joined forces in June when they launched a campaign calling for suspects to receive anonymity unless they are charged so others don't have to go through their horrific ordeal. Speaking at that launch event, Gambaccini added that the then director of 
public prosecutions, current Labour leader Keir Starmer was, quote, the witch-finder general, and that the failures of Operation Utree can all be traced back to him. And I'm delighted to say that Paul Gambaccini joins me live in the studio. So, Paul, big announcement today, mm -hmm. TV project right. with Cliff Richard. Dr Neil Fox is a real friend of the show, actually. He's on oh. regularly. Right. And your good self. Uh, what's, what are we going to learn? Well, for one thing, my husband Chris is in it. <laughs> and Neil Fox's wife is in it. Nice. So that means you get to see the damage that is done yeah. to the people in your life. Not just you. No. Family and friends suffer terribly. And uh, I think we could talk about this for hours. Mm. And uh, I could tell you about the ludicrous accusations that the police let through because they were ordered to. You mentioned Keir Starmer. Mm. I went to Michael Gove when he was Justice Minister because those of us who found ourselves in the position of being ludicrously accused. And remember, there were a few uh, genuine offenders. And then there were the middle category, which is the real tough one. The accused and the accuser had met. What happened? What's the perspective? That's tough. But then there's our group where we didn't even know these people. And so we all were thinking, who thought this was a good idea? And uh, so I asked Michael Gove and he said, well, the, the uh, National uh, Police College said it started with Keir Starmer, really? uh, with his change of philosophy, with it, which I'm sure you're familiar. Which was believe all yeah, accusers. Believe, yeah, yeah. Uh, and by well, the way, I know how, that terminology is, yes, you know, yes, yes, because yes. you think they should be referred to as accusers until yes, the person right. is found. Yeah, that's just logical. Yeah. And, you know, and if you're going to make an argument in the English language, you should use the English no, language agree. properly. I agree. I completely agree. So you describe him as the witch finder general. Well, because it started with him. And you I, think he did this to potentially <clears throat> pursue a future political career? Because that is something that has at least been speculated upon. Well, let's put it this way. I don't know for sure, but it sure would be consistent with what I do know. You know, I was on um, TVAM for years, mm. breakfast television, Camden Town, and walking to the tube station, I would often see Frank Dobson, MP, because the Labour headquarters was right near the tube station. And you were a big Labour supporter, we have to say, as well. I have, so this isn't I, yeah. political for you. Yeah, because... in my life, I have supported all yeah. the parties at different times. Yeah, but you're certainly not someone who was opposed to the Labour Party. You oh, no, 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 no. I was... Oh, this well, isn't here is something which is completely grotesque. I had, I had held a fundraiser for Ed Miliband in my flat the year before I was arrested, which turned out to be the last time I ever saw him because the minute I was arrested, I was persona non grata. And the so party, he just dropped you? They just dropped me. And, and the um, party called my husband, Chris, and said, Chris, you're welcome to come to the fundraiser, uh, but uh, we're going to uninvite Paul because uh, you know the press. There would be pictures of Paul instead of Miliband or pictures of Paul with Miliband. Uh, and the ironic thing was that that particular fundraiser was based on what I had done with the Terence Higgins Trust in the 1990s. Mm. So they were basically throwing me out of my own thing. But they had a fundraising dinner, which was hosted by Stephen Fry. And Stephen said to me, what am I going to do? I've been publicized as the host, but I can't not say mm. anything about you. And I said, Stephen, you're going to be the one with the microphone. You can say what you want. He said, excellent. So this was... Keir Starmer's coming out party for the Labour Party. 
Uh, this is where he was going to be launched into Frank Dobson's safe seat by Ed Miliband. And so Stephen Fry does two bits. The first bit is we must elect labor. We can't afford a conservative government, et cetera, et cetera. Then he said, we believe in justice, and that means innocent until proven guilty. And uh, Operation Utree, and to repeat one of my points, if it were a football team, mm. it would be relegated because it lost such a high percentage of its matches. And he walked back to his seat, which was next to Ed Miliband. And Ed Miliband said, according to Stephen, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> uh, and in the Daily Mail, uh, which always sends spies into labor fundraisers, <laughs> I don't know how to do it, but they had a response from Ed Miliband's spokesman saying his thoughts are with the victims. And then a source close to Keir Starmer, which he was a newspaperman, no means Keir Starmer, uh, said that uh, we are uh, supporting the victims. So, uh, so, so given everything you know mm -hmm. about Starmer, about his involvement in Utree, mm -hmm. about that callous treatment of you, now we know a victim of a great miscarriage of mm -hmm. justice, that is a proven fact. How do you feel about the prospect of this bloke becoming prime minister? Well, there were a number of people <laughs> who were on my list. I have a little list. <laughs> My mother once said to me in 1985, I would hate to wrong you, you never forget. <laughs> so as these people would fall, I would say, the curse of Gambaccini strikes again. So Bernard Hogan Howe, yeah. out. Cressida Dick, out. Yeah. Alison Saunders, out. Lord Hall, out. But, oh, Ed Miliband, loser. Uh, but the guy who remains is Keir Stormer. Mm. And that bugs me, I gotta say. And, you know, I can't even see beyond him mm. to see if there are decent people in the modern Labour mm. Party. Can we talk about the BBC too? Because obviously you've had a lot of legal success in terms of pursuing what happened to you via the police. Uh, but you have hinted that you may take further action against the BBC, which is of course quite a fascinating position given you remain yes, a yes. BBC Radio 2 right. DJ. Yeah, and Radio 4 presenter. Uh, well, uh, apparently everybody seems to think that as long as I have no uh, complaints about the network management, and I have no complaints about network management. Mm. It was only the corporate management. Mm. And uh, these people, unfortunately, made a wrong choice. They committed themselves to dishonesty and injustice for their own public relations purposes. They thought, oh, well, we have to support the police at every time. And in so many cases, we could name names. I mean, we could damage careers, but that's not in, in my interest right now. It's not my priority right now. Mm. I would like the law changed first. But uh, the idea that Lord Hall and his clack of hacks mm. could get away with that and not publicly apologize, not atone, mm. not admit error, well, guess what? May I just name Martin Bashir? Mm. Uh, my old friend, uh, Charlie Spencer, he's mm. done pretty well against the yes. BBC. And, uh, Proving you can do it many years on, too. Yes, of course. So this won't go away. I mean, as, as long as I still walk the earth. Uh, and, <laughs> when you're and going strong. The others, yeah. Um, yeah, you can't let it happen. They have to apologize. They have to atone. Uh, because otherwise, uh, I know that they are a morally corrupt institution, which is a terrible thing. I mean, the current uh, director general has refused to meet me. Really? Yes. 
he, he does not want to engage with the issue, thinking that it will mm. go away. See, this is the, the big error That's of all Tim these Davey. people. Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not going to go away unless we die. <laughs> Let's talk about FAIR, because I know yeah. this is your real passion mm. project. It's a really yeah. interesting yeah. one for me, actually, because coming from newspapers, mm -hmm. that's very much mm -hmm. part of our belief as journalists that there should be full freedom of the press around arrests uh, before folk are charged. But the longer that this has gone on and the more lives that I have personally seen destroyed because of completely false allegations, and there are examples of that happening right now as well with other individuals right now, I really think I've changed my mind. Mm -hmm. But why do you think it's so important? And what do you say to journalists who say, if you introduce you know, a ban on naming folk who've been arrested before they're charged, you're actually starting to limit freedom of the press in Britain? Well, you're not. And, and I actually had the pleasure of saying to Lord Hall, to his face, when he finally met me five and a half years after I was arrested. And uh, I said, well, I went to Cliff's case. He said, I heard you were there. And uh, I said, well, I want you to know that when he won his case against the BBC, mm. you sent a letter to the Attorney General saying the law should be changed to ensure freedom of the press. But that's not what you wanted. You did not want freedom of the press. You wanted the freedom to disseminate lies because that's what the BBC did in the Cliff Richard case, in Operation Midland, and so forth. And uh, with this legislation that is being proposed, uh, it will restore fairness across the prison because in this subject matter, you have some genuine offenders, as I've said, mm. and then some people that are questionable and that's where you have difficult trials. And then you have people who just never met the people who accuse them. And uh, it seems to me that the uh, so-called flypaper technique of naming someone so that other people accuse mm. them is grossly unfair. Uh, as we know, and you know coming from New Zealand, there and in Germany, uh, it's anonymity until conviction, and in Ireland, anonymity until charge. Why are we in such a rush? I'm very upset when I hear people quote the Stuart Hall case as an example of why you should be able to name people before charge, because he was arrested the same day he was charged. Mm. So uh, yes, people came forward, but he had been charged. And uh, unfortunately, when you know, as, as I do, and as I became aware of many of these other cases, as you do too, and incidentally, of course, so many people who are not famous, mm. the suffering of uh, young people uh, who don't have finance for expensive trials. Uh, it, it's a horrible thing. I am so heartbroken. I moved to this country and took citizenship because I thought this was the most humane country in the world. I was proud to take citizenship. And then I was betrayed by the police and the BBC. And Cliff said, it's horrible knowing the people you should be able to trust the most yeah. are actually the people you can trust the least, yeah. meaning the police. So what we're saying is let's bring in anonymity before charge with the clause that if a uh, judge says the uh, suspect is a threat in the present moment, then you can name him. The classic example is John Warboys. Yeah. Um, if there's a John Warboys out there, yeah, we would say name him. Yeah. But all of these cases like uh, Lord Bramall and so forth, uh, they're decades ago. Yeah. 
No, indeed. Well, look, as I say, as I say, you've 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 won me over on this one. Um, very quickly, you're still on radio too. Did you see Paul O'Grady? He, he he's the latest yes. latest yeah. big name to get the the boo. You know, it really feels like if you're old and male and white, you're under threat at Radio Two at the moment. But you're staying. At the moment, no one has suggested to me that I leave. Paul Gavaccini. Thank you. Great to chat tonight. It's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. She cemented her name as a culture war crusader during the Tory leadership contest. And now Suala Braverman is continuing the good fight by rooting out gender ideology in classrooms. The brave Attorney General has waded in on the hot button issue today, declaring that schools have absolutely no legal obligation to comply with the gender preference of their pupils. Watch. Many schools and teachers believe incorrectly that they are under an absolute legal obligation to treat children who are gender questioning according to their preference in all ways and in all respects, from preferred pronouns to use of facilities and competing in sports. Well, just last week, our superstar panelist Ashley James said she would happily respect her young child's pronouns of choice and got a fiery response from Rod Little. Look. Times are changing whether we like it or not. And if my son ever says to me, I don't feel, I don't identify with being a he or him, would you call me they? Of course I would, because I want him to feel comfortable to be who he wants to be. What happened at the Tavistock Clinic is merely the symptom of Alex deciding that her son uh, should be called whatever pronoun he thinks he should be called. That is the stuff which causes it. Rod and Ashley, who he actually called Alex, and that clip, perhaps he didn't get a look at her pronouns, have been chomping at the bit to go head to head for weeks. Ashley has even declared, actually, on multiple occasions that she wished she'd chosen Mr Little as her union jackass. So tonight, I'm letting these two lock horns. Rod Little, you first. Well, I don't think there's anything to argue about particularly, Dan. You know, I think if you're, if you're the parent of a child who says that she wishes to be a boy or he wishes to be a girl, then you handle it with sensitivity and you uh, remind them that you are the adult in that relationship uh, and that you are there for guidance and that is what your job is to do. And it isn't to indulge in what has become a kind of contagious epidemic uh, amongst schools, particularly in the southeast of England, uh, which is where it, where it has happened. I, I mean, I was impressed by Suella Braverman to a point. I think it is more to the point that kids, until they're 16, should not be indulged at all, no matter what the case, in their uh, wishes to be called something different to what they are. It's an affectation. It's the same sort of affectation which we saw in my day, except it's manifested itself in a different way. And it was treated with uh, no great indulgence back then, and it should be treated with no great indulgence now. Uh, it should be treated with kindness, and it should be treated with understanding, but we shouldn't go along with it. We should try to inculcate into those kids a sense of reality, a sense of truth, a sense of honesty, and a sense of scientific dignity. Uh, as to what they are. And usually, what we usually find when children are um, uh, claiming to be gender dysphoric uh, or say they wish to be a different sex to the one they are, is that there's usually a far more deep-seated 
deep-rooted psychological problem there, which genuinely does need help. In many cases, it's simply contagion in that they've heard other friends doing it in school. But in many cases, and we know this from the studies of people who are uh, who have transitioned, that there is a, a greater propensity to schizophrenia, to psychological illness, to depression, to bipolar disorder, and various other uh, psychological disorders. So that needs to be looked at, and that needs to be treated. And that's what I hope these new clinics, which are going to be set up in the case uh, in, in lieu of the appalling, the appalling Tavistock yeah. clinic, will be doing. They will be taking a more holistic approach and attempting to look at these kids and find out what the underlying cause is, rather than going going along in a fashionable manner uh, and sending them to have these dreadful drugs yeah. uh, uh, imposed upon them, uh, and which later we will soon see how many writs come in. So, Ashley, uh, you're usually yeah. sitting there getting angry as you listen to Rod. Well, Tonight I, you one, get to respond. I think one thing we can agree on is that people, especially children, deserve to be treated with kindness and respect. And I think denying that trans people exist, last week you said you'd even misgender Caitlyn Jenner, an adult who has transitioned, you would still say he. I find that incredibly disrespectful. The trans community has existed for a very long time. And actually, I wouldn't wish gender dysmorphia on anyone because it's such a hostile environment. Um, if my son ever... Um, you know, my son or anyone I cared about or anyone's children said that they were feeling like they were living in the wrong sex or, you know, they didn't identify with the gender that they were being called. Like, calling some... Respecting someone's pronouns is not dangerous. It's just actually quite polite. And using correct pronouns has been shown to reduce the risk of um, depression in children. OK, Rod, why do you have a problem with it, Rod? Why, why do you have a problem with what Ashley's And proposing? can I just quickly say that <laughs> affirming and supporting <laughs> trans children doesn't hurt other children. It's just encouraging people okay. to not bully children. Rod, come in. Because it's perpetuating a lie. It's telling the child a lie. It's telling the child there's something that they are not. It is a lie, and you mustn't do that to children, even if it's difficult, even if it's hard, even if it causes anguish, even if it causes anguish to you, you don't take the easy way out, you tell them the truth. You know, five, six years ago, my, my lovely daughter, who's in the other room at the moment, decided she wished, wished to be an Arctic fox. Uh, and at this time, there were, there were plenty of people uh, arguing that you could claim to be anything at all that you wanted. You, uh, what was I to do at that stage? And say, well, of course, darling, you can be an Arctic fox if you wish to be one. Of course you can. It's, okay, it's, Ashley, it's a, final word. I just think, um, you know, tra the trans community exists whether you like it or not, like I said, and respecting people doesn't harm anyone else around them. But also, it's definitely not it's an not easy way out. I wouldn't wish for any parents to have to navigate um, their child becoming trans. And I also understand that people are very young and impressionable, and I respect all of that. But in regards to Braverman's speech, it also doesn't reflect the Equalities Act okay. of 2010. OK, well, look, I, I could watch this go on. We will do more another day. Rod Little, Ashley James, brilliant uncancelled. Thank you so much. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.